everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey, everyone. It is Friday, July 8th. I'm Mo Shwinunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast as we head into a weekend. Jill, I see you through the magic of the internet. Hi, Mosh. Good morning. And might I add, it was great to see you in person for the first time in two and a half years uh, a few days ago. Yeah, we were, uh, Alex and I were driving out east on Long Island, and we made a stop on Long Island. You're on Long Island, right? There's a whole Seinfeld joke. You're yes. in the city. You're on Long Island. And Jill, I we hadn't seen each other, I don't think, in person since pre-COVID times. And you went all cliche and moved out to the suburbs during COVID. <laughs> I <does>. did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a cliche. Um, and uh, obviously, you were still dealing with COVID uh, when we saw you last weekend. So we had an outdoor hello several feet away from one another. But it was so great to see you, your husband, and little Alex. And my belly, and my not so little belly, actually. Um, you guys delivered a ton of great food, and also uh, the Mo News mug. So Mo, oh, you she- have one now. Yes, I have one now. I'm convinced you guys stopped by just so you didn't have to FedEx me this mug. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking for some savings, so we we drove through, but now we're twins. Hold up the mug, chill. Here we go. Um, I'll take a screenshot of this for, for folks at home. We'll throw it on the Instagram. Good stuff. Now you're officially, officially, you, you have the extent of the merch that we have right now, the, the folks we are working on some more. Well, I was going to say, when are you going to give the people what they want, which is Mo News swag? Swag is coming. We have final designs in progress. I think we got t-shirts, hats hoodies, mugs. I think we're going to start there. And I don't have an exact date for everyone, but at some point this summer, swag will be available. Yes. Okay. So let's get to some news. Here is what we're following today. The latest from Highland Park, some new questions about how the shooter was able to legally buy an arsenal of weapons and the shocking comments from his father. Congress, get ready. Gen Z is coming for you. And this new crop of 20-something candidates not looking to compromise. And this summer, as you sip your Moscow Mule or your margarita, there's a new pill that could prevent those dreaded hangovers. But is it too good to be true, Mosh? What do you think? 
Like most headlines in the news, Jill, the answer usually is probably. (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. Okay, before we get to that story, though, Mosh, let's talk about the latest out of Highland Park. The father of the alleged parade shooter is speaking out. In an interview with ABC News, Robert Cremo Jr. says he is not culpable in the July 4th attack, despite having signed a consent form for his son to apply for gun ownership. He said, quote, I had no, not an inkling warning that this was going to happen. That headline comes as his son, Robert Cremo III, has been charged with seven counts of first-degree murder, with more charges likely coming. The 21-year-old admitted to opening fire on that July 4th Highland Park parade, and he also told authorities that he seriously contemplated carrying out a second shooting massacre at a different July 4th event in Madison, Wisconsin, but he decided to drive back to Illinois instead. He's uh, yet to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty as he talks to his lawyers. Still lots of questions remain about how he was legally able to buy this arsenal of weapons despite a pretty troubled past. Yeah, and you know, going back to that Madison note there, Jill, I, I heard, uh, I got several notes from folks on Instagram who were like, oh my God, I was going to head to that Madison parade. I can't believe that he made it here and then debated whether to shoot people and decided not to. We were in the last pod talking about the fact that it did take them eight hours to find him. And now we have a sense of what he did in those eight hours, or at least we're starting to get that sense. I think that that interview you referred to, and it looks like the father spoke out to a couple outlets because I'm seeing some quotes in the New York Post as well, separate from the ABC quotes. Um, He's done some phone calls. He's hired his own attorney uh, in the interviews, he says that he never saw his son as a danger to anyone. And he was asked about that 2019 incident we've been talking about, where the Highland Park police were called in when Cremo, the son, the third, uh, apparently threatened to kill his whole family. The police confiscated 16 knives. Um, The father was asked about that. Hey, like, why would you sign the permit for him given that incident? And he says in interviews, well, quote, that was totally taken out of context. It was just a child's outburst. Whatever he was upset about, I think his sister called the police. I wasn't living there. So the father goes on to say the police then removed the knife collection in what he calls an out-of-context event. um, And he didn't believe there were any other weapons in the house. Uh, The other thing the father says, Jill, is that he doesn't regret signing the consent form for his son to get guns. He says that the son went through the process himself. I have no regrets about that. What? I mean, is he being advised by his attorney here? I, it just, that he, is this is to get, you know, exonerate himself from any sort of culpability? Because um, it feels like, how would you not just regret that? I, I don't know. That it, that feels bizarre to me. It it, it felt almost uh, emotionless, you know, like it, it just seemed bizarre to me. And it kind of reminded me of the situation. I mean, he faces, I mean, potential criminal penalty, but he definitely faces civil penalties here. If you recall, I mean, unfortunately, there's too many of these incidents, but the school shooting in Michigan, uh, the boy Ethan Crumley, and the parents there are facing multiple lawsuits for what would deem uh, or what you would see as even less than what Cremo did here, which is like literally help his son get guns. Um, And so I don't know that his lawyer would have advised those comments. I always find it surprising when people tend to talk to the media this quickly when they face real, you know, legal issues. And so it really, I mean, I advise folks to read these interviews. Um, there were also pictures that came out over the uh, over the course of the week of the mother and some of the altercations she's had 
with uh, law enforcement recently. And so clearly there were there was trouble in the Cremo home going back a few years. It's funny you say that, though, because as a former field reporter, I used to always, unfortunately, you kind of just have to go where tragedy would strike. And I would often think, you know, do these pe- these people don't have to talk to us. And I wanted to kind of say that to them sometimes and just be like, if, you know, maybe don't answer the door or say no comment. Um, you know, but I, I guess sometimes people just can't help themselves. Right. Because you have a certain job as a reporter, right? Your job is to gather information, you know, find out details. Um, and so you have to ask, like, hey, are you willing to talk to us about what went on? You know, one of the things that I always didn't like about the job and the way that, you know, we in the media sometimes cover these tragedies is that we'll always find relatives. And you know this, like there are cousins and aunts and uncles that are very close to people. And there are people who haven't talked for years. And so ultimately you'll be like, the aunt said X or the cousin said Y. And then after the fact, you'll find out like they haven't spoken in 10 years, but they saw a camera and an opportunity to be on TV. So they're like, hey, I have thoughts. In this case, though, the father clearly is relatively close to the son. Well, to a certain extent, we're still trying to get a sense of of exactly what their relationship was like. And of course, the father is pretty prominent in the community. We remind folks he ran for mayor of Highland Park, mayor of that town two and a half years ago. He also spoke about the days leading up to the attack. He said he spent nearly an hour with his son in his yard the night before the attack talking about the planet, whatever that means. And he told the New York Post he is, quote, in such shock, he says, like, did he have a a psychiatric break or something? Um, Okay, Moshe, a lot of people asking about the laws here. And and is there anything that could have prevented this from happening? So can you walk us through what we've learned so far? So- What we know is that Illinois does have one of the stricter gun laws um, in the country. Um, It actually is one of 19 states in D.C. that has a red flag law. A red flag law, um, which is what the federal government is trying to get all states to implement, allows family members or law enforcement to petition the court for a what's called a firearm restraining order against someone suspected of endangering themselves or others. In Cremo's case... The law was never petitioned, despite these past threats. And it's pretty clear based on listening to the father here. He's like, well, I have no regrets. And he didn't seem like a threat. And the gun and the knife thing was childish. Keep in mind, by the way, when the knife incident happens and he threatens to kill the whole family, he doesn't have a gun at that point. And so there was nothing that the, you know, they couldn't revoke a gun permit at the time. The police came to the house when the knife incident happened, confiscated the knives, and then they moved on. And the question is, like, does every police force not to be constantly looking through its records, being like, hey, remember that incident last year on this corner? Do we need to be going back? The challenge here, Jill, when it comes to red flag laws, which in essence, you know, are effective at times, is that it depends on the family or friends or someone to say, hey, authorities, this person might hurt themselves. We do have evidence from Connecticut and Indiana, which are two states that enacted some of the first red flag laws, that for about every 10 to 20 of these legal actions where they confiscate weapons, they believe one life is saved by averting a suicide. And that's what many of them are used for, is family who are worried their person, someone they know and love, has a gun and is uh, depressed uh, to the point where they're uh, fearing they would take their own lives. We also talked about the new federal gun law. Most analysts say that it would have been unlikely that the new gun law that just passed Congress and signed by President Biden, that it would have prevented that shooting in Highland Park. Although police say that a well-run red flag law might have done the trick in preventing the shooter from keeping firearms. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, self-reflection happening in the state of Illinois. I mean, forget the feds for a second. I mean, Illinois, there's talk about passing an assault weapons ban in Illinois now, specifically um, just for the state. Of course, one of the issues you face in Illinois, one of the reasons you actually have such high gun deaths in Chicago is a lot of those, a number of those guns uh, are coming in from states with looser laws like Indiana and Wisconsin. So, you know, you can drive across the border, uh, get a gun more easily over there, and then bring it into Illinois. So Illinois can only do so much. One of the issues they're facing, too, is how does Illinois state police, which deals with gun permits, what is their bureaucracy like? What is their record keeping like? Uh, this is just the latest in a string of incidents where somebody where there were warning signs uh, somehow got, uh, whether it was in the application side or the Illinois State Police side or the vetting side, somehow was still able to attain a weapon and um, unfortunately uh, commit a tragic act. And Mosh, the U.S. did have a federal assault weapons ban from 1994 to 2004. What does the research say? Did it work at preventing these types of mass shootings? Well, I've been trying to go through a few studies here, and the issue they face in the research related to 94 to 04 is uh, there are different definitions of mass shooting, different definitions of assault weapons. For the most part, several of the recent studies do show that there was a major uptick in mass shootings after the assault weapons ban lapsed. Remember, it was signed by Bill Clinton, was let lapse during the Bush administration, and um, since then you've seen sort of um, an incredible amount of assault weapons uh these AR-15 style rifles, et cetera, sales out there and a major uptick in mass shootings. Though there is a recent study from the American Public Health Association that does show that there is a more significant impact if there's a ban on large capacity magazines. These huge magazines that basically oh, allow you more bullets before you reload. Uh, they believe, at least according to that study, this is a 2019, late 2019 study, that that could be more impactful Especially, I mean, it's a really dark conversation, Jill, but that if somebody chooses to commit one of these acts, the more time they take to reload, the less capacity they have within a magazine saves lives. Uh, as for the victims, funerals will start today for the seven people who were killed in the attack. A GoFundMe page for two-year-old Aiden McCarthy, whose mom and dad were both killed in that attack. That's already raised more than $2.8 million dollars. His father, Kevin McCarthy, shielded Aiden from the shooting and had Aiden under his body when he was shot. It's so horrific. It's, it's, there's just no words really to even describe it. Um, at the very least, though, the fact that this GoFundMe page has uh, already amassed nearly $3 million, it, it shows this shooting is, is resonating. Absolutely. Um, I know I've heard from... A number of people in the area that they're looking to do um, a march on Washington, a rally on Washington, uh, to uh, call for uh, stricter gun laws. So I'm sure you'll be hearing about that in the coming days. And of course, Jill, there are victims still recovering. I mean, there's going to be the hundreds, uh, if not thousands of people who were either related or attended the parade who will be dealing with the emotional trauma here. And then, of course, the people who were wounded dealing with the physical trauma. One of the youngest is an eight-year-old named Cooper Roberts right now. He is in critical but stable condition at a Chicago hospital. The eight-year-old uh, Cooper was shot in the chest. He was attending the parade with his twin brother, Luke, and his mother, Keely Roberts. Uh, she's also suffered significant injuries. She's gone uh, through uh, multiple surgeries. She was shot twice in the leg. Uh, the twin brother, Luke, had shrapnel in his leg. He's now home. But Cooper uh, suffered major injuries, including a severed spinal cord. I've seen 
conversations, you know, on Instagram, trying to ensure that there were specialists in pediatric um, surgery related to spinal cords. Uh, they were trying to get him the best medical expertise. And so he right now uh, is recovering in the hospital and we're praying for a, a full recovery there. Absolutely. All right, switching gears, let's head overseas. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing his resignation, finally succumbing to mounting political pressure. It follows a string of ethics scandals, which led about 50 senior lawmakers to quit the government. So what is next? In a controversial move, Johnson says he's going to stay in office until his successor is picked. The Conservative Party is going to be holding internal elections to pick the next prime minister, likely sometime over the summer. Critics of Johnson, though, say that he really shouldn't be allowed to stay in office. Instead, they say the queen should be picking a caretaker prime minister and then let the conservative party really pick its new leader properly. Yeah, if this sounds familiar to folks who watch British politics, Johnson was actually the third consecutive British prime minister to resign before the end of their term due to lack of party support. That follows Theresa May and David Cameron. Uh, speaking of the Queen, by the way, I keep seeing reports, Jill, that she is not doing well health-wise. So I don't know if she's in a place to be able to do such a thing. But the bottom line is Johnson, for his part, faced a slew of scandals. The most recent one was how he handled allegations that a senior member of his government uh, groped two men. Initially, he said he didn't know anything about that uh, or his history up there. Then eventually Johnson admitted, oh, well, I did sort of know about that. But, you know, he seemed to dismiss all of that. Uh, it also came as Johnson attended multiple parties at Downing Street when the rest of the country was under COVID lockdowns. I mean, there have been a kind of a a, a tip. I'm shaking my since. head. I'm shaking my head because that is it's so irritating. It's like do as I say, not as I do. Um, yeah. And it's just so ridiculous. These politicians who think they're really above the law that well, they're I, making. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought you're going to go this way, which is. Those scandals sound so quaint compared to what we have here in America. <laughs> oh, no. COVID-related? You get me fired up. Um, well, by the way, we had these here, right? Gavin Newsom? Um, yes. And and a number of leaders. The mayor of San Francisco, they were in Napa Valley. The the um, mayor of L.A. attending the funeral without a – not funeral. <laughs> uh, attending the Super Bowl uh, without a mask um, while the rest of L.A. like had the mask up. And so there's a, there's a lot of that. In this case – I think there was frustration with Johnson. He came in to really implement Brexit, but you know he had his own shtick, if you will, and it didn't really land well with a, a lot of folks in the UK. On the issue of his legacy, though, it, this is considered pretty humiliating for him. He did roll out a successful vaccination campaign to combat COVID-19, speaking of, of COVID, and he also led Britain through Brexit as it exited the European Union. So, Mosh, what is the impact, if any, here in the U.S.? So it, it obviously plays a much bigger role in the U.K., right? They have to figure out what they're going to do, new conservative leader. It'll be interesting to see who, who they choose. Uh, but ultimately, leaders here and in the U.K. refer to the relationship between our countries as, quote, the special relationship. And so... I've good, seen uh, love, actually. I know. <laughs> 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 love, love, actually, yes, exactly. The the movie that taught more Americans about uh, <laughs> British prime ministers than any other film. So Br Brexit's the biggest legacy. This White House has not been the biggest fan of Boris Johnson. They feel that he's been less than predictable, a bit chaotic. Uh, notably, Biden's statement 
put out after uh, Johnson resigned, didn't mention his name, but said, we look forward to close cooperation with the UK on priorities like Ukraine. And so uh, I think that for the most part, uh, this White House has found Johnson uh, pretty cooperative when it comes to issues like Ukraine. So they were happy about that. But they had issues with sort of um, how he managed things and how he managed communication. Staying international here, Phoenix Mercury star Brittany Griner pleading guilty to drug charges in a Russian court on Thursday. She faces up to 10 years in prison, but she told the judge there was no intent to break Russian law. Quote, I didn't want to break the law. I'd like to give my testimony later. I need time to prepare. A little background for anyone not totally up to speed on this. Greiner was detained at Moscow's International Airport back in February after customs claimed to have found a vape cartridge with hashish oil in her luggage, but she was charged with, quote, large-scale transportation of drugs. She, of course, had a very much a trace amount uh, of hashish oil, according to um, the official admission here. Until now, though, for the past four months, the line from the U.S., and from the people around Griner is that she did nothing wrong. So I think when people saw the headline cross on Thursday uh, that she was pleading guilty, it was sort of a stunner for folks. Why is she pleading guilty? Well, experts tell ESPN and other uh, networks that are covering this that the nature of the Russian legal system meant there was basically zero chance she was going to be acquitted. So they thought it's probably better that she do this. The other thing they say is that this is they see this as part of a process that admission of guilt is necessary pretext to a potential prisoner exchange. Remember, one of the things uh, that's been widely reported is that Putin is potentially looking to trade Griner for uh, a Russian or Russians that are currently in prison here, in particular, an arms dealer named Victor Bout, uh, who we've held for a while here in the U.S., that seems to be the name that's percolating in terms of who gets traded for Griner. So the idea is this admission is the first step in a prisoner trade. All right. Quickly on the politics beat on Wednesday, we talked about Joe Biden being this old school type of politician looking to work across the aisle. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's this new crop of Gen Zers who are running for office and apparently not looking to compromise at all. NPR profiled three of these candidates, two Dems and one Republican. So they're part of Gen Z, which is technically anyone born between the years 1997 and 2012. If elected, they would potentially be the first Gen Z members of Congress. So the question is, how will they approach politics? Let's just say the era of bipartisanship may really be over. I, I mean, uh, it was already over, but it's, yeah, been even, it's now just dead, done. It's, it's, yeah, it's been donezo for a good portion, I think at least a decade since maybe Obama was elected. Um, though you do see glimmers of it. What is interesting is that you have to be 25 to be a congressperson, which means if you were born in 1997, the year is 2022, that officially is why Gen Zers can now uh, enter Congress. Soon enough, Jill, they'll be telling people like you and me, okay, millennial. Will that replace okay, boomer <laughs> at some point? I I feel like I'm sort of, we're even elder millennials, right? We are officially millennial as 82 to 96. Um, then there's the kind of no man's land of 1977 to 1982. Those are exennials, like you're too young for Gen X, but you're too old for millennial. That's um, kind of where I fall. The, the no man's land. And I like it. I feel like we go under the radar a little bit. The Xennials? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think, like, you understand technology more than the Gen Xers, <laughs> but, like, not quite as much as the Gen Zers. Anyway, but back to the topic at I hand. I still like those memes. Like, I still get the memes where it's, like, 
do you know what this cord was for? Or, you know, like I, I still remember old school technology. Rotary phones. I mean, <laughs> I, as an elder millennial, I remember until we had a computer, my I would write out my essays or whatever my essays were in fourth or fifth grade. And my mom would type them up on a typewriter for me. Like that's what we were doing, us elder millennials, whereas the youthful millennials only know the internet. Okay, so tell us about these Gen Zers, Moshe. Oh, what, what, that's sorry. What's the plan? We, we went on a tangent there. So, <laughs> so basically what we're learning is there's a handful of them running for Congress this cycle. We're probably going to see the first couple elected this November. Uh, a couple of the ones they look at is a guy named Maxwell Frost. He's a Democrat running in the Florida 10th, which is, uh, covers part of Orlando. Pretty blue district. He's 25. There's another woman, Caroline Levitt. She's a conservative. She's a Republican uh, Gen Zer running for Congress in New Hampshire. Uh, both say they are not there to compromise. They are there to stand for their values. I was struck by this, uh, the Democratic candidate saying, we come to the negotiating table not already at the compromise, which is usually what Democrats tend to do. I think this is part of the reason why the Republican Party has these long-term plans that a lot of times come to fruition. So what he's basically saying is, we Gen C stand for what we stand for. This older crop of politicians compromise too much, and we need to take a stand if uh, we really want uh, what we care about to become law. And it comes as Congress is pretty old, right? The the average age of House GOP leadership is 55. But on the Democratic side, millennial trailblazers remain left out of leadership. The average age on their side, 71. Yeah, like elder boomers are running the Democratic Party. I mean, Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, remember, um, we have a problem in the White House, too. Our most recent presidents are in their 70s, uh, and they may be, as we talked about in the last pod, facing each other again. <laughs> if Trump or Biden is elected, either will be in their 80s by the end of the presidency. When it comes to the country, though, Jill, the average American, I looked this up today, is 38 years old. So right now, Democratic leadership is twice the age of the average American. Uh, right now, GOP leadership is could be the average American's parent. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of people out there who are saying our leadership has gotten too old. If we're not going to impose age limits, we need some more youth in Congress that are more in tune with the issues and also are thinking down the road, right? Because ultimately, we elect our leaders to make decisions that will matter decades from now. And our current leadership is, you know, not going to be around decades from now. And so we do need some more youth in there. I think the Republican House leadership's done a better job of getting some younger folks in there. Democrats have not. And so we'll see if this inspires more younger people uh, to get involved in government. Okay, time now for our speed read from The Verge. Sonny Balwani, the former business partner and romantic interest of Elizabeth Holmes, defrauded investors and patients of the blood testing company Theranos, according to a jury, which found him guilty on all 10 counts of wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Holmes, by the way, she was convicted of four counts of fraud against investors. Mosh, you and I are both big fans of the podcast and the series, The Dropout, about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos saga. And you even interviewed Rebecca Jarvis about it. So are you surprised Bilwani was actually found guilty on more charges than Holmes herself? You know what's so interesting about this, Jill, is that what happened in their trials, and they had separate trials, right? Holmes uh, had her trial. She was found guilty earlier this year than Bilwani had his trial, is that they were basically pointing the finger at each other. And so it, it's pretty interesting to see kind of how all this unfolded. One of the things that uh, Holmes claimed in her trial is that 
she tried to point the finger at Balwani for forcing her, pressuring her, in some cases abusing her and, uh, mentally and physically. Despite all that, uh, she's going to be sentenced in September. They both face up to 20 years in prison. Remember, she just had a child. In fact, part of the reason her trial was delayed was partially because of COVID, partially because she had a baby. Um, so, you know, we'll see if that plays a role into the sentencing uh, that she gets versus what he gets. And we'll be posting in podcast format the interview with Rebecca Jarvis that dives deep into the Theranos thing uh, any day now. All right, from the New York Times, January 6th panel secures deal for Cipollone to be interviewed. The January 6th committee got itself a big get. Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel to President Trump, he's reached a deal to be interviewed, and that is likely happening today behind closed doors. The panel has been wanting to hear from him for quite a while, but that really intensified after former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony she said that Cipollone had expressed deep concerns about the actions of not only President Trump, but Mark Meadows. So, Mosh, what might he say? That's the uh, million-dollar question, Jill, because ultimately he does have attorney-client privilege, his executive privilege, there's lots of privileges he can claim. That said, he didn't fight this in terms of like an open warfare with Congress, which is what you're seeing from other people like Steve Bannon and, and others around the president. Cipollone was one of the few people who was in the room, the room where it happens, as they say in Hamilton, for many of the most important conversations. Hutchinson and others place him there repeatedly. And this is reporting that goes back years now. Every time Trump wanted to do something that was potentially questionable legally, he would constantly be pushing back. And that includes in the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th itself, Hutchinson in particular placed him there and in conversations where he said, Mr. President, that might be illegal. Mr. President, that is definitely illegal. Mr. President, you should definitely not do that. And the question is, ultimately, you know, he's an attorney. He became the president's attorney. How much can he claim is privilege and how much will we find out? I would advise anyone uh, to, you know, be checking back starting Friday afternoon and into the weekend for potential leaks from that conversation from that testimony. And you can imagine it will potentially be mentioned next week when the January 6th committee is set to have a couple more uh, major hearings. From time, now that BA5 is dominant, stopping it will be difficult. As of the last week of June, BA5 made up more than half of all new COVID-19 cases in the US, according to the CDC. This highly contagious strain can evade people's built up immunity, whether from vaccination or previous infection or both. And because there is still so much virus spread, it means that their risk of mutations is still really high. And Moshe, I'm going to leave one of the worst pieces of news to come out of this article to you. I'll take it away. Jill, Jill, <laughs> Jill, yeah, Jill and I always have this discussion where like, as we're planning uh, stories for the newsletter and the podcast, she's like, Moshe, there's COVID news. And I'm like, Jill, I can't do, I can't do it anymore. And you're like, Moshe, but this one's important. <laughs> and now you've got me on the pod uh, bringing new research that is sort of depressing. So this is what I know. And here are the caveats. There's new recent research that comes out of a study uh, by the VA of several million people. And I should remind folks, this is yet to be peer reviewed, but it found that people who have been reinfected with COVID-19 had a higher risk of hospitalization and death than people who had just been infected once. So basically, as we're dealing with a situation now of multiple variants and multiple reinfection, they, based on this observational study, found that you had the potential to develop lasting health issues like harder lung problems, fatigue, neurologic issues, the more times you're reinfected. Now, one note, this is an observational study, which means it cannot determine cause and effect. Uh, 
Um, they're just observing people generally. Also, the research notes, and this comes from the researchers who were talked, I think talked about this in the CNN story I was reading. It is more common to see reinfections among people who had existing risks because of their age and underlying health. So that shows that reinfection may not be random, and it could be that health risks linked to reinfections are not random either, which means it, you know, uh, your existing health and your age may play a factor here in that research. But the bigger thing, Jill, is we continue to see this Omicron you know, change. Now we're at Omicron BA5. Um, and I've seen these sort of visuals, I'm sure you've seen them too, of just the variants on the tree and like kind of how it's evolving and all the various strands from the additional Wuhan strain. And it just keeps, you know, getting longer. But my hope is that sort of like Omicron, it is less deadly than the previous strains. And so let's hope it continues that that path. From NBC, James Kahn, veteran godfather and elf actor, dies at the age of 82. Movie tough guy James Kahn, whose work spanned generations in such big screen classics as The Godfather, Misery, and Elf, died on Wednesday, according to his family. He was 82. Quote, Jimmy was one of the greatest, his manager said in a statement. Not only was he one of the best actors our business has ever seen, he was funny, loyal, caring, and beloved. Our relationship was always friendship before business. Yeah, Jill, I was um, watching a Sunday morning piece uh, this afternoon when I saw that headline, and he still seemed, and this is, I think, as of a year, a year and a half ago, um, still totally with it, still a great personality. He had a six-decade-long career. He was known for ad-libbing, especially in the Godfather movie. I mean, the famous lines about bada-bing, bada-beep, bada-boop. Um, that was just like him throwing that out there. There's also a scene where he throws the camera on the floor at the wedding and like just throws cash on the floor. Apparently, that was an ad-lib. And uh, scenes like that and actually the bada-bing line inspired The Sopranos. In The Sopranos, you might remember that the Gentleman's Club is called bada-bing. Apparently, that was after uh, the, his line in The Godfather. I didn't know. I didn't realize that he ad-libbed that. And I didn't realize that that's why Sopranos named it Bada Bing. That's I, I good learned, insight, Mosh. The Mo, I, you I, know. <laughs> Sonny, you know, we're, we're looking back at, this is the Sonny issue. We had Sonny Balwani uh, get con, uh, convicted today. <laughs> and we, uh, we remember Sonny Corleone uh, as well. Though I was hearing from people on Instagram, especially the younger set, uh, that they remember him as Will Ferrell's father in Elf. Uh, later in his career, of course, uh, Khan got into comedy. And as a Chicagoan and growing up Chicago Bears fan, I will say, I don't know if you've seen um, Brian's song. Have you, Joel? No, no, I haven't. It's sort of a movie, you see, um, but it, there's not a man who's watched it who's a fan of football who hasn't cried in that film. He plays, James Gunn plays Brian Piccolo, a friend of Gail Sayers. It shows this relationship between a white player and a black player. Brian Piccolo is a, a real-life a uh, person who played for the Chicago Bears who passed away at a very young age uh, from cancer. So it's a, it's a very emotional story, but I'll remember James Conn in that film as well. From Complex Magazine, a new hangover pill called Merkel has just gone on sale in the UK. This new hangover pill promises to help drinkers wake up feeling refreshed. The pill, again, is called Merkel. It's said to be the first product in history to break down alcohol effectively. It's been in development for more than 30 years. It's packed with several ingredients, including Bacillus septalis, that's a probiotic, and there's this amino acid called L-cysteine. It reduces alcohol into water and carbon dioxide, and it works by breaking down alcohol before it reaches the liver. It uses vitamin B12 to ensure that drinkers are left without a headache. 
According to scientists, two pills should be taken at least an hour before any alcohol is consumed for maximum effectiveness. Yeah, this is a pretty remarkable headline. I believe this is on sale in the UK. I haven't seen yet whether you can buy this in the US. A Swedish pharmaceutical firm found that taking the tablets reduced alcohol concentration in the blood by half within 30 minutes of a drink, and then it rose to 70% after an hour. Not all experts, I should say, Jill, uh, believe in this product. One doctor quoted in that complex story from the Alcohol Hangover Research Group was vehement in the story, saying there is no scientific evidence that this even works. Then there's also <laughs> a quote from a doctor who says, to be clear, this is not a product for people who want to get drunk. Taking Merkel prior to alcohol consumption will make getting drunk much more expensive and take longer. I think Merkel could be relevant, though, for a huge number of moderate drinkers. Jill, it doesn't seem too pricey. 36 bucks for a packet of 30 capsules, they say. Okay, this is going to make me sound horrible, but isn't the point of drinking to get drunk? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, As someone who hasn't had some... a drink in nine months, by the way. Or if not to get drunk, Jill, to take the edge off, as some people exactly, say. Exactly, exactly. Just to like kind of, you know, get a little buzz or something. Yeah, I guess there's I, wine connoisseurs and people who do just love the taste of alcohol, I, though. I, I feel like the 22-year-old version of me might have been excited by this news, being like, yeah, man, like, no <laughs> hangover. But then, as these experts are saying, you're like, it'll also take you longer to feel the effect of the alcohol. I don't know. I mean, this seems, as we are saying at the top of the uh, podcast, is this too good to be true? Does this work? Will there be side effects? I don't know. I, I don't think I'll be trying this anytime soon. I think I, I can manage myself with one or two drinks these days. All right, from the AP, 76 million-year-old dinosaur skeleton of T-Rex relative to be auctioned in New York City. Okay, a 76 million-year-old dinosaur skeleton. The Gorgosaurus fossils will highlight Sotheby's natural history auction on July 28th. It's estimated to fetch about $8 million. The Gorgosaurus was an apex carnivore that lived in what's now the western United States and Canada about 80 million years ago. It predated its relative, the T-Rex, by 10 million years. Okay, Moshe, I feel like if you had all the money in the world, this is something you would actually go for. Oh, a thousand percent. You have like a huge <laughs> dinosaur in your home. Apparently, all other Gorgosaurus skeletons are in museum collections, and this is the only one available for private ownership. So this one was discovered in 2018 in Montana. It's 10 feet tall. 22 feet long. In my current home, I actually couldn't, you know, I have an apartment in New York City, so I could definitely <laughs> not put the Gorgosaurus in there. Um, but by the way, I also feel like, Jill, when we were growing up, they were like, you know, you learned about about a dozen dinosaurs. I feel like now they've they've made such progress and dug up so many dinosaurs. Like, I'm hearing about all these dinosaurs I never heard of. A Gorgosaurus? Like, that seems... I, I don't remember hearing about that before. Never. No. Uh, you. It no. was like T-Rex... Uh, there was the plant eating one, you know. Yeah, the were... big brontosaurus. Yeah, and then it kind of began and end there. And then the the flying one, <laughs> right? Well, you know what? When you have kids, you do start to relearn a lot of this stuff because they're learning it. So I do have some dinosaur books, and and I will tell you a lot of the names I don't recognize. So Gorgosaurus, by the way, for those listening at home, here's a random fact for you: fierce lizard. Gorgosaurus means fierce lizard. By the way, taking us back to like where would you would you place that dinosaur in your home? The only thing that I've seen that's even remotely similar, 
Anderson Cooper, uh, the CNN anchor in his home. So he has this old <laughs> firehouse in New York City. And he, a couple of years ago, hosted the 60 Minutes end of year party. Um, so I attended that back in my days at CBS. And he has a huge stuffed grizzly bear that I don't know if it was his great-great-grandfather Vanderbilt, one of the Vanderbilts back in the day, shot this grizzly bear, stuffed it. And Anderson has it in his home in the village in New York City. That's crazy. Oh, and um, I think it's about the same height. It's got to be at least 10 feet. I remember looking up to it. No I photos think the were allowed in house. Would you want that in your home? The grizzly bear or the dinosaur? The grizzly bear. Um, I mean, I guess it kind of, it's, it's a family thing. Like, hey, my, you know, if there's a good story behind it. It's bizarre though. Like, I feel like that would scare me at night. I definitely like wouldn't put it in my home, like on route to like the bathroom. <laughs> right, <at> right. <laughs> <laughs> the shadows alone. Exactly. Okay, it is Friday, and cheers to the freaking weekend. It's time for our segment that we look at what we're watching, reading, and eating over the weekend. Mosh, kick it off. So shout out to James Kahn. If I have time, look to rewatch Godfather. I haven't seen it in a few years now, Jill. When's the last time you watched it? Start to finish, not in a really long time. Every once in a while, I'll catch a little bit on TV. Yeah, so I like watching it old school, like a elder millennial that you are yes. uh, with commercials. <laughs> um, so, so three, if I was... minutes, so it's it's like six hours instead of three. So I feel like I need to watch one, in particular two, one of the better sequels in movie history. And uh, I should give people a heads up: Monday, the final tranche of Better Call Saul comes out on AMC uh, for fans of that show. Though I should admit, I'm a couple seasons behind there. What are you taking a look at? Uh, I think I'm going to try watching a little Wimbledon. Rafael Nadal shockingly withdrew from the tournament, citing a torn abdominal muscle. He's really been struggling with it, though, for about a week. He'd been 19-0 in major tournaments this year, having won the Australian and the French Opens. Yeah, so he was headed, uh, he was trying to pull off the very rare feat of a calendar Grand Slam, meaning winning all four of the major tournaments in a year. This would have been the third of three. The U.S. Open would have been the last. So he is out now. He's lost that chance. The last one, by the way, I was like, who did the last calendar Grand Slam? Surprising Steffi Groff back in the late 80s. There's been a couple oh. women. And the last man to do it was in the late 60s. Um, so all the great tennis stars, like, that feat is really remarkable to win all four of the major tournaments in a year. Uh, he, by withdrawing, Kyrgios now goes to the final. He'll face the winner, I think, of Djokovic and someone else. And then... Um, so that final will be Sunday morning, the men's final. The women's final, featuring two first-timers or two uh, women who could win it for the first time, is going to be Saturday morning. If you're up at 8 a.m., you can begin to watch the women's final. Okay, what are we reading? So uh, you know me, Jill, for not having the easiest beach reads. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this book is really impactful, and it's in preparation for an interview I'll be doing for an upcoming podcast episode. This is with Benjamin Sledge, who's a former Army Staff Sergeant. I interviewed him last summer, August, during the Afghan withdrawal. He has a new book out called Where Cowards Go to Die. He's won the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, incredibly eloquent when it comes to the uh, struggles that vets have had, in particular the Iraq and Afghan vets, and what happens back at home with PTSD, mental health, etc. We'll link to it in the show notes, uh, his book, Where Cowards Go to Die. So I'm starting to read that, and we'll have an interview with him coming up in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so I'm reading this piece in the New York Times. It's called These New Breastfeeding Guidelines Ignore the Reality of Many American Moms. Okay, there's a lot of talk in the mom community right now about these new guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
which basically suggests increasing the duration of breastfeeding to two years or more. Right now, the recommendation is one year or more. So this is just getting under people's skin. For one, it comes as there is, of course, this serious formula crisis in the country. So it kind of feels like there's a little bit of blaming the victim here. The author of the recommendation says that is definitely not the intention. Roe v. Wade, of course, just overturned. And not to mention the Senate failed to pass what's called the Pump Act, which would have given women more access to workplace protections for breastfeeding or pumping. According to the New York Times, teachers, registered nurses, agriculture workers, many others have no federal right to take work breaks to pump milk to feed their nursing babies. So the bottom line, as somebody who has tried to breastfeed and is perhaps going to attempt to do it again, it is not easy. It's insanely time-consuming. Of all of my friends and all of the women that I know who have babies, I, I know one who has breastfed for more than a year But it's just not realistic for most women. So I get why this new recommendation is just kind of bothering people. It's it's, it's just like not in touch with reality at all. I can't imagine how frustrating it's been for you. By the way, uh, Jill, you neglected to mention the tampon shortage. Like women don't have enough going on. (laughs) Like there's the formula shortage, the tampon shortage, the failure to pass the pump act, uh, these new recommendations about uh, two years of uh, breastfeeding recommendations, um, et cetera. And for those who don't know, Jill, you're due next week. Right. One week from today uh, is I'm supposed to get a C-section. It's not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a seven-day countdown. Uh, wishing you the best with all of this, and um, no one, no one judges you uh, for what you do. Whatever you do as a mom is right, as far as I'm concerned, Jill. Thank you for that. It's it's just you know what there winds up being this weird judgment and a lot of pressure on breastfeeding and pumping and, and formula. And it's really unnecessary uh, just because a fed baby is a happy baby is a healthy baby. And that's really kind of what we should all be living by. Okay. What are we eating? I'm certainly eating watermelon. It really is the perfect summer food. I'm going to go with that as well. Uh, Alex, as she does in the kitchen, has uh, been working up like a watermelon refreshing smoothies and drinks, etc. And of course, the nice part of watermelon, I really dig the watermelon salad with the with the cheese crumble, like you do with a little feta and mint. I like the attempt to insert watermelon as into like the savory cuisine. It's very unexpectedly good, right? It's like you wouldn't. Wa- I don't know who decided to put a little feta cheese on watermelon, but nice job because it is delicious. <laughs> we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to look that up. It's it's like many things. Like you, you know, you always like look into like food history, and they're like, who came up with this? And they're like, well, it depends on who you ask. It was According probably per- an accident. It was like it's like penicillin, right? Like somebody probably just spilled some feta on watermelon and tried a bite and was like, hmm. This is good. Totally. Well, it, you always, when you mix those flavors, like it's like putting salt into like a chocolate chip cookie. Like when you have <laughs> right. that kind of unexpected thing, you're like, oh, I totally dig this. We could go on for hours though about our mutual passion for watermelon. <laughs> Sounds like chill, but we probably have to end this. Yes. Unfortunately, Mosh, we do have to wrap, but uh, as always, a big thanks to everyone for listening. We'd love your feedback. Just email us, podcast at mo.news. You could subscribe to our newsletter at monews.bolton.com and also follow on Instagram at mosh, M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and review us in the App Store and whatever podcast app you're listening to us on right now. We will be putting up this weekend uh, that Theranos conversation that we mentioned with Rebecca Jarvis uh, for those who are interested in listening to that ahead of maybe listening to the 
Dropout podcast or watching it on Hulu. Um, either way, Jill, wishing you a wonderful weekend. I uh, hope to see you here uh, next week. <laughs> Me too. I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet. <laughs> we're gonna. We're, we're we're telling you, little one. You got to give Jill another week. Okay. Stay in there. Just a few more days. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. See you guys.